Welcome to All Things IDD, hosted by the ARC of Wichita County. On this podcast, we share resources for those with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families, raise awareness, as well as create a space for stories by and about those with disabilities. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with Dr. Frank Del Rio talking with us about behaviors, why they exist, and how to effectively approach situations with behaviors. Some other things I'm going to talk about are things that can be used in a classroom setting or in your house, just in general. It can be either way. So if there's school teachers listening, you can use this for a classroom. At home, you can use this at home. Some of this goes along with some of the things I've talked about already. But post your list of rules. I talked earlier about how it's good to have rules and have the child or adult with IDD participate in making the rules. But put it in writing and put it up on the wall. Again, there's something about that visual component that makes things easier to follow. Keep that list short and simple and frame it positive. Don't put down no running, but use walking feet and put down what to do, not what not to do. We want to establish clear expectations. Make sure that our expectations are known ahead of time before we transition to new activities. Individuals and adults with with IDD need to know what we expect. So there's a difference between what we expect during circle time versus what we expect during recess. There's a difference what we expect when it's bedtime versus dinner time. So we want to make sure the expectations are understood. In your house, is it okay? Do you, does everybody eat at the table? Are they allowed to take their plate into the dining room? Are they allowed to eat their dessert before dinner? What are your rules and expectations? There's no right or wrong. It's what works for your family and then consistently applying it. I haven't used the word consistent often enough, but you want your rules to be consistent and reliable. When your child or an adult with IDD understands rules and they understand the expectation, they do much better. They're actually much more comfortable. A lot of the folks we work with do really, really well with structure. It's one of the best things for them. And so while this feels maybe a little heavy handed, it's one of the best things we can do is have very clear expectations on how we want things to go. Again, pay attention to the positive because we've talked about that before. We don't want it to be the squeaky wheel gets the grease. You hear that all the time. Complain about stuff and you'll get more attention. You'll get moved to the front of the line. Well, our kiddos are great at that. They know how to throw a tantrum if that's what it takes to get your attention. So why bring it to that? Let's go ahead and nip that in the bud and give them their attention. Um, I'm going to tell you a statistic that might surprise a lot of people, but it's been validated several times. More than 50% of behavior is attention-seeking in nature. I'm going to repeat that. More than 50% of behavior is attention-seeking in nature. It may not be attention-seeking the way you and I would think about it. And kids on the spectrum, it's a little bit different because they have a lot of sensory issues. But in typical children and a lot of kids with IDD, that statistic tends to be true. So we want to go ahead and give them the attention for the positive stuff, because if they're going to get it anyways, we might as well make sure they get it for doing what we want. Then they're more likely to do it, because when we like the attention we get, we're more likely to repeat the behavior to get that attention, which is why when I throw a fit and then you come over to me and say, I'm sorry, you're upset. Let me get you a candy bar. Well, if I want a candy bar, guess what I do next week? I throw the fit. So there's a reason we want to give it to positive attention. So instead of saying, Billy, please stop talking when there's like maybe three or four kids at your table, 
Instead of saying, Billy, please stop talking, maybe I turn and say, Sally, you're sitting quietly. Good job, Sally. Alex, you're doing a good job. You're paying attention too. Good job, Alex. Billy will see that they're getting the attention and he'll come around eventually so he gets praised too. And then when he does do it, the minute he's doing it, you jump on it. As soon as you get the positive, you jump on it so they see that's what they get. We can offer incentives for good behavior. A lot of people don't like to think about that. But when you think about it, we're all motivated by different things. And behavior tends to be motivated. It's one of the things we talk about when we talk about motivation and reinforcement. What do people like and what do they dislike? People are more likely to do things when there's something they like at the end of the road. They're more likely to avoid things if there's something they don't like. So for instance, if I was to bring home some roses to my wife, I would hope that she would be, oh, thank you so much. But if I brought her roses and she hit me with them, I would know maybe roses isn't what I should do next time. We learn by how people react. So we want to make sure that we understand what people like, what they don't like, what motivates them. And so offering incentives, make sure that people are motivated. So making sure that we know what it is people do. For instance, if you brought me a Coke because you were happy with me, I would not be happy because I am a Pepsi fan, as those of you that know me know. <laughs> so we all are motivated differently. I also give that example because a lot of times when we're working with kids and adults with IDD, we think we're motivating them, but we don't always understand. Given the example, like with me and a Coke, you think it's a soda, what's a big deal? Well, there's a huge difference for me. And for a lot of the kids and adults we work with, what motivates them, it might seem like a minor issue. And there's a little bit of detective work to it in trying to help with their behaviors. But we really want to figure out what's at the bottom of their behaviors, what motivates them positively and negatively. That's what we want to try to figure out. I think I touched on this earlier, but we want to follow through with consequences. If a child or an adult exhibits a major rule violation, like they hit somebody, you need to follow through with an automatic consequence. For less serious offenses, you can give a warning, but it just depends on at home. You can have different rules than maybe an organization or a school. They have their own sets of rules they have to follow. One of the difficulties with warnings is if I tell somebody, if you do that again, you're going to be in trouble. I'm not going to tell you again. You have one more chance. When do I really mean it? If I'm a child or an adult with a disability, all I know is I can keep pushing it. And I'll give you an example. And I want you to listen to this example. I want Johnny to get up in the morning. And you can guess for yourself when I really want him to get up. Hey, Johnny, it's time to get up. Johnny, time to get up. Johnny, I've told you three times you're going to get up. Johnny, get out of bed. Now Johnny knows every other snooze, 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 get up. Because now he knows it. That's kind of the problem with warnings. If you have a policy where I'm going to give you a warning so you can fix it, and then I follow through on the next time if you don't take it, that's fine. But whatever you do needs to be consistent. I'll give you a homework assignment for those of you that have two parents in the household. Think about different things your kids do or the adult in your, in your life with an intellectual and developmental disability. And I want you that you tell them to be in bed at 8 o'clock. At 8.30, they're not in bed. What do you do about it? Write down what mom says and what dad says, what grandma says. Okay, next one. You tell them no food after 8 o'clock. 8.30, you look up, they've snuck food in their room. What do you do about it? You, mom writes it down, dad writes it down, grandparents write it down. How often are your answers consistent? 
a lot of times it's a very simple exercise, but when there's a behavior in your household or something that you know it's a big enough behavior that you're thinking this is a problem, that's one of the starting points is how is everybody handling it and are we doing it differently? If we're doing it the same way, this is good. If we're not, that's called intermittent reinforcement. Intermittent reinforcement is kind of a fancy word, but that means it's kind of just sporadic. The problem with intermittent reinforcement is it reinforces bad behavior. Now, I'll give you an example of that. If you went to a casino, for those of you that like to go to the casino, and every time you played, you lost, eventually you would quit going to the casino. However, psychologists and other people out there have learned how often you can lose before you'll quit. And so those machines are designed so that you will win before you quit. It's kind of, there's a whole gambling industry predicated on the fact that people only have to win a certain amount to continue the behavior. That's how they make the money. Otherwise, casinos couldn't stay in business. Intermittent reinforcement is what drives it. It's also what drives the behavior of people in our lives. So if you want a behavior to go away, you need to be consistent in how you handle it. And if you're consistent and it still isn't going away, then we find a different way to do it. But whatever we're doing, we want to try to be consistent. Now I want to talk a little bit about tips and things we can do to kind of make life easier, especially with individuals on the spectrum. But this will also help with other kids and adults with um, IDD. We want their day to be structured into a common routine as much as possible. If we can do that, it takes care of a lot of the curveballs that occur. And a lot of our folks really do thrive on routine. It's just interesting to see how many of them, when their routine is messed up, it just messes them up. So we want to try to keep things going in a routine. When our folks can reasonably anticipate upcoming events, it cuts down on problems. For a lot of the folks that we serve, transitions are a problem. Changing from one activity to another is really difficult. So we want to try to structure that in so they understand we have this occurring, whatever the event is, and after that we go straight to the next one. You can't, of course, do that every single day, but the better you do at that, the more we kind of cut down on behaviors. Because a lot of folks, especially on the spectrum, but a lot of our folks don't do well with unexpected changes. And I'll give an example. I had an individual in Graham that he used to go to a dayhab. And a dayhab is a place for adults that go, they learn skills. And so on Fridays, he would get his money and then he would go to the store. Well, there was a staff that wasn't familiar with that routine. So they came and got him and took him to a store. And start, he started screaming and yelling and knocking over stuff in the displays and broke a window. And so I got a 911 call and went up to Graham a little over the speed limit probably. And I talked to the, the store people and we got it all settled. But what they didn't understand, what a lot of people may not understand, is especially for someone on the spectrum, when you change their routine, it's almost like you're taking their breath away for some of them. It is actually physically painful, and they have trouble comprehending it, and they really do have trouble. And so a lot of people feel like, well, this is just an excuse as a cop-out. No, there's a lot of studies that show that people with autism tend to really struggle with changes in routine, so especially when they're used to it. Now, how that should have been handled had the staff known is letting them know we need to do this differently. So you start to prepare them or we call it priming. You prepare them ahead of time. 
We're not going to be able to go to the bank right away. We're going to go to the store first. This is why. And then someone at the day have should have told him. Then when he got in the car, someone should have reminded him. This is how we tend to do it because, of course, life can't be routined all the time. Somebody's going to get sick. Somebody's going to have a flat tire. Things happen. But as much as possible, we want routine, and that will solve a lot of behavioral issues. For some of you that don't have routines in your household, I highly encourage you to establish some. Have a, whether it's a dinner time routine, a bedtime routine. I'm going to throw this out as an extra thing for those of you that have trouble at bedtime, because that's a behavior that I've worked with a lot. If you write out steps on bedtime, whether it's get your clothes together for tomorrow morning, brush your teeth, take a bath, read a story, watch whatever that routine is, come up with a routine at bedtime. Then what happens is when you start the routine, a lot of adults and kids with IDD, and a lot of regular kids for that matter too, their brain starts to focus on the fact, okay, we're getting into bedtime. So they start mentally preparing for bed as you're going through the steps of bedtime. And then when they go to bed, it's actually easier for them to go to sleep because you've started about an hour, hour and a half early going through those steps or however many steps you put in it. Um, if you decide to do that, one of the things I encourage people to consider is choosing clothes for the next morning. You obviously don't need to do that, but the advantage to that is one, your child can have a say in it. Again, I mentioned you want them to have some power and control so you can teach them about matching clothes, whatever skills you want them to learn. And the next morning, for those of us that have difficulties in the morning, and I'm certainly one of them, um, that's one whole step we've avoided because the clothes are already picked out. So now that's going to make the morning go a lot smoother. So anything we can do with routines and the morning routines, the same thing. When we get up, how do we start it? Does Johnny get up first thing in the morning? Do I wake you up? I give you five minutes and I come back. What is the routine that works for your household? And again, there's no right or wrong answer. It's what works for your family. Doesn't have to match anybody else's, but it needs to be as consistent as possible. A lot of the individuals and adults we work with think in pictures. Temple Grandin is a pretty famous person with autism, and she talks a lot about that. In fact, she has a book, I think, called Thinks in Pictures. But one of the things we know is a lot of our folks are visual learners. We are to a point, too. I'm going to say a word here in a minute. Boat. When I said boat, you probably had a picture of a sailboat, a rowboat, a yacht. Something popped into your head because a lot of us are visual learners. So when we're teaching skills, giving prompts, try to give a visual. That's why if I'm trying to teach you how to vacuum, I can tell you how to do it, or I can show you how to do it. If any of you have ever started a new job, you notice that your boss can tell you all the neat things you need to do on the computer, but until you do it for yourself, you don't realize, oh, I didn't realize how to do it. I thought I knew how to do it, but I don't. That's because we all learn that way. When we're actually doing it, we're saying it, the more senses we engage, the better we learn things. So we want to try to give visuals when we're trying to teach. We also want to try to be brief. Long sequences and multiple step directions can be confusing when individuals have deficit. It's hard for them to stay on task and pay attention. So I don't want to tell you, okay, I want you to go get the vacuum, bring it out here, plug it in, da-da-da-da-da. Don't do all that. Um, can you go get the vacuum and bring it into the living room? Step one. Let's make it short, simple. We don't want to be real long. Um, we want to teach things in a sequence. Again, I talked before about routine, but a lot of times we don't think about the sequence of things. Now, I'll give you an example. Brushing your teeth, and I'll give you a moment to think about this. 
How many steps are involved in brushing your teeth? 23. And it's different for everybody, but that's a general ideal. But we don't think about it because people say, well, what do you do? Well, I get my toothbrush. How'd you get in the room? There's a lot of things. Where do you keep it? Do you get it out? Do you wash your toothbrush before you start? Do you do any, have any routine? Do you put toothpaste in it right off the bat? Do you do the top, the bottom? What do you do? What is the order of how you do it? Our folks do things in concrete one step at a time. I'm going to say that again. One step at a time. The more we teach it, the better. And some of those steps you can jump to right away. If your child or the adult you're working with knows the toothbrush is kept there, great. Then go straight to grabbing the toothbrush. But some of our folks, we need to teach them that. So you teach the things. As you go through it, you have to get the toothpaste onto the toothbrush. How do you do that? Do you want the cap put back on the toothpaste? I'm assuming you would like that step taught too. Uh, rinse the toothbrush afterwards. All the different things. And I give that just because that is something all of us pretty much do on autopilot two to three times a day and don't put much thought to. But that's an example of just the little things that we can make easier on the folks we're working with if we break it into steps and teach it to them. For a lot of you, and I'll do a, a podcast on autism probably in the future sometime, but one of the things I want you to be aware of is the environment of the adult or the child with, a, with an intellectual and developmental disability. When I have families that consult with me about um, behaviors with autism, one of the things I like to do is look at the environment they're in. Because there are so many factors that can affect behavior that have nothing to do with what the parent's doing necessarily. For instance, um, where I'm doing the podcast from right now, you guys probably can't hear it, but there's a slight hum. I'm going to shut up, so maybe you can. It's coming from a refrigerator. It's something that in your house as you're listening to this, you may have a TV going on in the background. You may have kids or a spouse or someone talking in the background. You could have a dog in the background. You're listening to me captivated, hopefully, right now, and you've <laughs> tuned all of that out because we have that ability. A lot of adults and children with IDD can't tune that out. So all that noise comes together. So you could have a flickering light. You could have a train that goes by not too far away that you've just learned to tune it out. It's a little annoying, but you tune it out. But all of a sudden that train goes by and your child starts acting up and you just don't tie it together because you've learned to tune out the train. There's so many things, fluorescent lights that flicker. If you have fluorescent lights and one of them is about to go out, a child or an adult with IDD will spot it way before you because it's going to start to affect them. So there's so many things that can overstimulate or understimulate someone. We could hyper and hyposensitivity is what we call it. And so sometimes it's subtle and can be overlooked, but it can cause a lot of problems. So one thing I would say is if you have an adult or a child on the spectrum that has behaviors, is there a particular place that occurs? And if you see behaviors in one place more than others, look at possible reasons that might be occurring. I want to say uh, on the topic of fluorescent lights, I either know somebody personally or saw on social media um, where they're affected by fluorescent lights and so their significant other got them glasses that somehow like uh like when they go into a store the fluorescent lights don't affect them as much so um have you heard of those before yeah they're, they're tinted glasses and i think they make some especially for people with autism but even just tinted glasses in general 
tend to help with that a little bit for folks who can tolerate it. Some folks with IDD and autism don't like them, but some of them love them and you can't get them off of them. Mm -hmm. Or like noise canceling headphones. Anything we can do. And it's one of the things we look at when we have folks who have trouble on the spectrum is whether it's noise canceling headphones, weighted blankets, what can we do that are sensory that might assist? And sometimes you just don't know. I've had some folks, we, we put a swing up at the ARC in our child care center recently. And I've seen a lot of people use swings fairly successfully. There's some of our kids, they live for those swings. There's something about, the, about that particular thing. Because we think there's five senses, but there's actually eight different senses. And one of them is the vestibular. And when you activate that by swinging and things like that, and it's kind of the sensation, if you will, when you're going down on a roller coaster, there's something about that that can be calming for kiddos on the spectrum or even adults on the spectrum. So, yeah, just figuring out what it is that works with that individual um, tends to make a difference to help. Okay. When we're talking to adults or children with IDD, if we're asking them a question or to complete a task, we want to give them some time to process the request. This is extremely important because the difference between noncompliance, which is what we think of as they won't do it, and not understanding is a, is a fine line. Because a lot of our folks have difficulty what we call processing speed. And processing speed is how your brain translates the information you're getting. And so if I say, Johnny, I need you to take out the trash. If Johnny just hears trash, then he doesn't know I want him to take it out. I know I've told him to do it, so now I'm mad because he's not listening to me. So I say, Johnny, I told you to take out the trash. Now you heard out the trash. He's still not doing it. So now I'm getting mad because he's not doing what I asked, and he honestly didn't catch it all. So when we're asking a question, one of the things I suggest is you say, Johnny, give him a chance to turn and look at you so you know that he has your focus, then finish the rest of the sentence. You don't have to do it that way. But for those of you that sometimes have a child, you're thinking they seem to not do things. I don't understand why they're usually pretty good about stuff. I don't understand why they're ignoring me. Maybe they're not ignoring you. Maybe they're not catching it all. So that's a really simple thing you can try. And if it doesn't work, you're not out much, but it might be a life changer for some of you. That's definitely something to try. Is it better to repeat a question in the same way that you asked it? Like if you aren't getting a response and you've, you know, kind of waited, do you ask the question in the same way or is it good to rephrase a question? Could that be more confusing? What do you recommend? You can do it either way. I, I don't think it's real confusing because the first time, especially if they didn't catch it all, then you're not really repeating something. They didn't catch it the first time anyways. So it really depends. But there's times they may not understand what you're saying. So rephrasing the question is not a bad option to do. Um, remember um, that um, our folks may need time to assimilate the information being requested. So when you ask them to do something, they may have to think about it. So again, this goes back to knowing the individual you're working with. They may need time when you say, hey, I need to know why it is that you didn't mow the yard. Why didn't you get go to the bathroom when you had a chance? You know, when your child says, I need to go to the bathroom like two minutes after you left the driveway. Um, if you ask a question, whatever it is, give them a moment to process the question and then to give the answer. Another thing I think I touched on earlier is some of our folks, adults and children with IDD, can have anxiety when they don't know an answer or an appropriate response to a question. And I think I touched on that earlier when I was talking about the little boy in the school. But our folks want approval. They want assurance that they're smart, 
that they're capable, that they're good, that we like them. So they tend to have anxiety when they feel like they don't know. I know we have an individual, wonderful young lady at our dayhab. Every time I see her, she says, Frank, am I a good person? I'm a good person, aren't I? She just needs that reassurance, even though everybody's reassured her. There's not enough reassurance in the world for her. She needs to hear it all the time. And does it hurt any of us to give it to her? Not at all. So just some of our folks just naturally have a lot of anxiety. I touched on this earlier, but a lot of folks are hands-on learners. They may not deal real well in things in a verbal format. And I've even did a training recently I did for a lot of individuals. I was talking about the ARC programs for a lot of teenagers. And one of the criticisms of my program, and it was a valid criticism, is I talked to the kids. And because I had 15 minutes to design the presentation, I just talked to them. I didn't do a PowerPoint, didn't do anything visual like I normally do, like I'm teaching you, telling you guys to do. And so one of the criticisms was, well, it would have been better if there's something we could have looked at. And it's a very valid criticism, and I should know better. So they, we all do better when we have hands-on. We can see it. We can touch it. Um, we, want, we, we just do better that way. We understand that um, the folks that we work with easily allow their emotions to impact their decisions and efforts. So identifying triggers is a really good idea. And um, I talked earlier about ABC on behavior. Behavior is what we see. The antecedent is what leads up to it. Emotions, a lot of times, what triggers it? Mom is at home and I expect her to be. I'm hungry. I act up worse when I'm hungry. I act up worse when I have homework. I act up worse when I don't understand what's expected of me. When we know what the triggers are, it gives us a chance to come up with a plan to overcome it. And so in the psychology world, we call that coming up with a functional analysis, which we will not even get into all that here. But that's breaking down all the different reasons a behavior might occur. And then once we come up with that, we determine how we're going to go about handling it. And so one of the things we're looking at is what are the triggers and how do we avoid those triggers? Because if a child has a meltdown, I think we would all agree that it'd be easier to prevent the meltdown than to deal with the meltdown if we can do that in an appropriate way. A lot of our individuals have strengths in repetition. So we want to make sure they have a chance to do the same thing over and over. If they get bored, and some of our kiddos can do that too, then you can stop. But a lot of times, the strength and repetition is how they learn. So we want to repeat, give them the opportunity to learn over and over again. And kind of in closing, I want to give you an example of a behavior. And I've talked a little bit about how behaviors work with our individuals. And a lot of this applies to normal, quote unquote, individuals too. But to give you an example of how behaviors can be so different, I'm going to choose non-compliance. It's a behavior that a lot of you have had problems with with individuals and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And I'm going to give you the example of mowing the grass. Okay? Now, I'm not mowing the grass, so I'm going to give you four different examples of why I might not mow the grass because what I want you to see is that as families, as parents, as teachers, what we tend to do is we see a behavior and so... We bribe you out of it. If you do good, we'll pay you $5. If you do good all week, we'll give you a star. We'll give you a candy bar. Or we say, if you don't start, we'll ground you from this. We'll ground you from that. Here's the difficulty in doing that when you don't know why it's occurring. So I didn't mow the yard. I don't want to. That's pretty straightforward. We all understand that one. I'd rather be doing something else. So 
In the first example, I don't want to. In this example, I don't mind mowing the yard, but you want me to do it right now. And the Dallas Cowboys are playing right now. I do not want to do anything when I'm watching my Dallas Cowboys try to beat somebody because it doesn't happen as often as I'd like it to. And so I want to watch my football game. So you understand now, it's not that I have a problem mowing the yard. The problem is I want to watch my football game. So that would be a different circumstance entirely, even though it's the same problem. The third example is I want extra attention. I'm going to give an example of someone. I had a guy at a day hab that was acting up and stuff. And what we'd have is we'd have all these girls. And I say girls, they're young ladies, probably in their early 20s. And they'd come up to ask him, are you okay? Can we help you? Why aren't you doing this? Well, this young man is getting individualized attention for like three or four young ladies. He had absolutely no problem. He was in hog heaven. He was ecstatic because he's getting all this extra attention. So once we finally said, look, we're going to tell him one time. And after you've told them, you go do your work. And then when you go to the other tables, tell everybody how proud you are of them for working. And we touched on this earlier. And sure enough, then he went to the table and then they praised him for working and stuff. And that solved that problem. But you see extra attention. Sometimes people, whatever that looks like for you, some people do it for extra attention. And maybe I just want to be left alone. You ever had that day you came home from work, you've got laundry to do, you've got dishes to do, you've got children to feed. You just aren't feeling it. You're going to have to take care of your family, of course, because you're a good parent, but you don't feel like doing anything. You just want to get in the bubble bath, read a book, light a candle. I want the world to go away. I want to be left alone. Does that mean we're a bad parent, a bad person? No, we have our moments. We just don't feel like it. So in my fourth example, it's not that I don't want to mow the yard. I just, right now, I'm Normally, I wouldn't care, but right now, I just don't want to right now in the moment. I just, whether I'm overwhelmed, I'm tired, I want to finish that movie I started, finish reading that book. So understand all four of those are the same exact problem, but each one of them would require a different approach. And I'm wanting to end there just because I want everybody to understand that when we're dealing with behaviors, I've tried to be brief, and I know I haven't really succeeded on that, but behavior is a huge topic. And... So when we're looking at behavior, we want to know why it occurs. That helps. But a lot of the guidelines I've given you, you can do whether you know why the behavior occurs or not. You can just start there implementing some of those and it should make your life a little bit easier. But all these are the different things we look at when we're trying to solve a behavior. And of course, the ARC is always available for those of you that are members of the ARC. If you ever have questions or concerns, you're always welcome to reach out to us and we'll be glad to try to help. Awesome. Thank you so much, Frank. You're welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. As always, be good to yourself.